morning, Gospel Hope. Man, it is good to be back with you once again, and it is good to dive into the Lord's Word once again together. So as Rod said, we are beginning a brand new series this week, and we're going to be in the book of Exodus, particularly focusing in on the Exodus story, the story of God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt. And I'll tell you something, probably outside of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I would say this is probably the most dramatic and exciting stories in all of the scripture. So I pray over the next several weeks that we will really be gripped by an appreciation for what the Lord has done in redeeming his people. Because as I'll tell you in a minute, the Exodus is not just a story from back then and back there. The Exodus is actually our story. And I pray God will drive that home even this morning as we begin this series. We pray with me as we begin here today. Lord, we just want to pause and acknowledge our dependence upon you. Father, we need you. We need to hear from your word. We need your spirit to work in us. Lord, I pray that you would take this precious word and press it deep into our hearts. Pray that you would till up the soil in our hearts and allow allow the good seed of the word to find root and grow and flourish Lord, would you help us to be different when we walk out of here than we were when we came in? Help me. Hide me behind the cross. Lord, don't allow me to distract from your voice today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. During World War II, in the spring of 1943, a captured Royal Air Force pilot named Roger Bushnell led an effort to escape the unescapable Nazi prison camp called Stalag Luft III. At the infamous camp, the Nazi had taken measures to prevent tunneling, such as raising the prisoners' huts off the ground and burying microphones nine foot underground along the camp's perimeter fence. But Bushnell and his compatriots would not be deterred. Over the course of the year, the Allied prisoners stripped 4,000 wooden bedboards to build ladders and shore up the sandy walls to prevent collapse. They stuffed 1,700 blankets against the walls to muffle sounds. They converted 1,400 powdered milk cans into digging tools and lamps. They even fashioned a crude air pump system and constructed an underground trolley system to remove debris from their tunnel that went 30 feet underground. Then finally, on March 24th, 1944, 76 prisoners escaped Stalag Luft III and managed to enrage Adolf Hitler. The heroics of the Allied POWs was immortalized in the 1963 movie called The Great Escape. But as amazing as this story is, it pales in comparison to the escape recorded for us in the second book of the Bible. The word exodus, after all, does mean a mass departure. And that's exactly what it is. When the story is all said and done, over two million Israelites escape from slavery in Egypt. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. In order to understand what's happening in the book of Exodus, we need to get a little context 
Actually, it's several centuries of context, so a little maybe an over-exaggeration there. So let me back up and get us starting kind of back several hundred years as to what's going on in Exodus. In Genesis chapter 12, God called a man named Abraham to leave his ancestral home and made this history-altering promise. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, here is what God says to Abraham. Go out from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those that treat you with contempt, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. This is what we know as the Abrahamic covenant. And it's God's promise to Abraham and his descendants that he would make him into a great nation. So Abraham left and he prospered in this new land. Eventually he had a son named? Eventually he had a son named? Who had a son named? Jacob, who had 12 sons who would become the 12 heads of the tribe of Israel. During Jacob's time, there was a severe famine in Canaan, however. But God used Joseph, Jacob's son, who he thought dead, to save his family from the famine. Joseph, through God's providence, had risen into second command in Egypt and was honored for his plan to preserve not only the Egyptians, but the whole region by storing up food and grain prior to the famine. So under Joseph's protection and care, the descendants of Abraham relocated from Canaan and went and made their home in Egypt. So now God called Abraham out. He left his father's house. He went to Canaan. Now the descendants of Abraham now moved to Egypt where there is food. For a while, the fledgling nation of Israel flourished in Egypt. They rode out the famine. But then we read in Exodus chapter 1, verse number 8, a very ominous note. A new king who had not known Joseph came to power in Egypt. And that's when things went downhill. We read in verse number 9, he said, Pharaoh said to the people, look, the Israel people are numerous and powerful than we are. Let us deal shrewdly with them. Otherwise, they will multiply further. And if war breaks out, they may join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Egyptians enslaved and oppressed the Israelites, putting them to forced labor and even plotted to murder their baby boys. Look at verse number 22 of chapter 1. Pharaoh then commanded all his people, you must throw every son born to the Hebrews into the Nile. But let every daughter live. How merciful, Pharaoh. At this point, it didn't seem like things could get bleaker for the Israelites. Just put yourself in their shoes for a second, right? Like, stop and think about what's going on here in this story. Not only would they have felt victimized, oppressed, overwhelmed, but if you were in that situation, you were supposed to be the people of God. You were supposed to be the ones who were going to be a great blessing. You were supposed to be God's chosen nation. Don't you think your faith would have begun to waver just a little bit? Do you think you might have started to ask questions like, God, have you forgotten us? God, are you going to keep your promise? 
Where is this home that you said we would have? We don't look like a great nation. We look like slaves. We're not blessed. We're cursed. God, where are you? We're getting beat down here. Aren't you going to do something about this? But little did the Israelites know that God was about to make good on his promise in the most spectacular fashion. Though Exodus begins with enslavement and suffering and injustice, the Exodus ends with Israel free, Egypt decimated, and God exalted. That's the end of the story. That's where Exodus ends up. So you might hear all that and say, Wow, I mean, that's a great story. I mean, don't get me wrong. That is a great story. But what does that have to do with me? I mean, that was several thousand years ago. And I see that God really eventually came through and delivered his people. But what on earth does that have to do with me living in 21st century America? In one sense, the answer is everything. Here's why. You see, like the Israelites, we too face oppression. But not by a mere human king. Our enemy is actually worse than the one described in the book of Exodus. What is more, if we're honest, we like the Israelites can begin to wonder if the Lord is actually going to come through for us. Right? Have you ever wondered that? Has life ever got a little bit challenging for you and you, like the Israelites, began to say, Lord, where are you? Are you going to show up? I mean, I know you say all things work together for my good, but it sure don't feel like that right now. Lord, are you going to be faithful to your promises? Or at the bottom of it all is essentially this question, God, can I trust you? Can I really trust you? So if you've ever felt like the Lord has forgotten you, if you've ever felt like, if you've ever questioned whether God's plan was really best, if you've ever doubted that God was going to keep his word, then the story of Exodus is for you because the story of Exodus is essentially this. Here it is in one sentence. Here's the story of Exodus. God will never forget his people. That's the story. That's it. Like in a nutshell, here's what Exodus is telling us. God will never, never, never ever, never forget his people. In fact, as you close out Exodus chapter 2, our text today, that's exactly what it says. Look at verse number 24 of Exodus chapter 2. So God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. In other words, God would be faithful to his promise. I will make you a great nation, guys. It might not be the way you expect. It might not be on your timetable. But I will be faithful to my promise. I never forget my people. Which leads me to my point this morning. It's very simply this. Listen, church. You can always trust God. That's it. I mean, it's not rocket science. 
It's not super profound, but it's the bedrock reality of this text of scripture. You can always trust God. I do not know what is going on in your life, but based on the authority of God's word, here's what I can say with full assurance, with full confidence, without batting an eye. You can trust God in your situation because he never forgets his people. Never. I don't know if you're suffering some sort of poor health I don't know if you feel despairing and falling apart. I don't know if there's circumstances in your life that feel like the world is crashing down on you. I don't know if there's a great fear in the future. But here's what I want to say. You can trust the Lord with that. He'll come through for you. He always comes through. He always keeps his word. And if you put your hope in Jesus Christ, he will not forget you. Maybe you hear that and say, man, I know, I know that, Ryan, I know that. I'm at church for Pete's sakes. Don't we all know that? I mean, we're supposed to trust God, but it's hard. It's hard. It's hard to trust God. Is it hard to trust God, folks? I mean, I always want to trust God. But I don't always trust God because life is challenging it sometimes. But here's where I think Exodus 1 and 2 really helps us because in this story is not only embedded the idea that you should trust God, but I think if we read it carefully, we also see a couple of reasons why we should trust God. Does that make sense? Like this passage not only says, trust the Lord, but it also says, and by the way, because I know your faith is not as strong as maybe it should be, And by the way, I know that your hearts sometimes wander. And by the way, I know life gets difficult. So here's what I want to do. Out of grace and mercy, the Lord says, I want to show you why you can trust me. So this morning, I just have two very simple points. Reasons you should trust God. Number one, first reason why you should trust God is this, is because God's wisdom is infinite. God's Wisdom is infinite. You can trust the Lord because there is no one who is as wise as God is. As the story begins, we're introduced to one of the vilest characters in the whole Bible. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And because Pharaoh is threatened by the Israelites, he seeks to subdue them in the most dehumanizing ways possible. First, he enslaves them. Verse number 11. So the Egyptians assigned taskmasters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. They worked the Israelites ruthlessly and made their lives bitter with difficult labor in brick and moil Uh, brick and mortar and in all kinds of field work they ruthlessly imposed all this work on them and as if this were not enough pharaoh's wickedness plunges to a new depth verse 15 the king of egypt said to the hebrew midwives when you help the hebrew women give birth observe them as they deliver And if the child is a son, kill him. But if it's a daughter, she may live. But as formidable and as malevolent as this evil was, let me tell you something. 
the Lord was not in the least bit flustered. Pharaoh was powerful and Pharaoh was bad. But God was not flustered by him. First, the Lord makes the enslavement counterproductive. Look at chapter 1, verse number 12. But the more they oppressed them, the more the Egyptians oppressed the Israelites, what happened? Then the more they multiplied and spread. So the the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Then he obstructed Pharaoh's plan for infanticide. Verse number 17. The Hebrew midwives, however, feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. Finally, the Lord simply turned Pharaoh's plan to subjugate his people completely on its head. Look at chapter two. There he starts telling of the birth of a Hebrew boy to a Levite family. In order to protect her son, this mother crafts a basket and puts it in the Nile near where Pharaoh's daughter bathed. And what happened? Verse number five of chapter two. Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe at the Nile while her servants girls walked along the riverbank. Seeing the basket among the reeds, she sent her slave girl to get it. And when she opened it, she saw the child, a little boy, crying. She felt sorry for him and said, this is one of the Hebrew boys. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, should I go and call a woman for the Hebrews to nurse this boy for you? Go, said Pharaoh's daughter. So the girl went and called the boy's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child and nurse him for me and I will pay your wages. So the woman took the boy and nursed him. So the baby is saved. And given back to his mother, who was paid to take care of him. But, but that's not all. Verse 10, when the child grew older, she, meaning Pharaoh's daughter, brought him to, I'm sorry, the mother brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses. Okay, pause right there for a minute. Because she said, I drew him out of the water. So, so get this. Okay, ready? So the child who would become God's instrument of deliverance, is raised in Pharaoh's own house. And then notice what Pharaoh's daughter names him. Moses. Why? Because she drew him out of the water. (laughs) I mean, mean, God is just showing off at this point. Because remember what Pharaoh said? Pharaoh says this. When you get these Hebrew little baby boys, you throw them in the water. And God says, oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to have your daughter, Pharaoh, raise this little Hebrew boy who will rescue my people. And she's going to call him Moses, which means taken out of the water. So for Pharaoh's whole life, here's this Moses taken out of the water, standing right before him as a reminder that you just can't beat God. So what is the point God can't be outmaneuvered. I mean, you can be clever, you can be conniving, you can be shrewd, but you cannot outmaneuver the Lord. When I was a kid, one of my favorite shows was the A-Team. Any A-Team. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah, I'm getting fired up right now. So the A-Team was awesome, but the plot of the A-Team, every show, It's really the same, right? So there'd be some person in trouble, and they would call the A-team. That was the beginning of the show, okay? The A-team would show up to help this person that was in trouble. And usually the person that was in trouble was being, like, oppressed by some evil 
They were being overpowered by some evil. So then the A-team would come in and they would devise some like super complicated plan which always involved uh, Mr. T welding. Every episode, he always was welding something. And then at the end of the show, they would trick the bad guys and catch them and deliver the people who were being oppressed. And then at the end, every time Hannibal, the leader of the A-team, are you folks ready for this, ready? He would take out the big old stogie, he would put it in his mouth, and he would say the line, I love it when a... That's what I'm talking about. I love it when a plan comes together. I mean, when you watch that show, no matter how like bad it looked for the A-team, you knew that Hannibal was going to come up with a plan and they were going to turn the whole thing on its head and make the bad guys look really stupid. You just knew that every single episode that that was going to happen. One of the reasons I loved the A-team so much as a kid, because I knew, I knew that they always had a plan. In a very small way, this is how the Lord is. No matter how powerful his enemies, no matter how hell-bent they are on his people's destruction, God will never be outsmarted. You can't trick the Lord. You can't outmaneuver the Lord. You can't outwise the Lord because he is infinite in wisdom. He always has a plan and it always comes together. Look, you can trust God. You can trust God because he always has a plan. It seems to me that as powerful as the enemy's schemes are, as powerful as they are, he will always be defeated. <laughs> That's why the Bible can say things like this. Job chapter 42, verse 2. I know, speaking to God, you can do anything and no plan of yours will be thwarted. Or Isaiah 54, verse 17, speaking to God's people, no weapon formed against you will succeed. Why? Because God is wise and God has a plan. And even in the midst of your suffering, he is executing his plan flawlessly. The God of the Bible is antiquated with frustration. God has never been frustrated. He does not even know what that is in one sense because it just doesn't happen to him. God's never wrung his hands. God's never pulled out his hair. God's never banged his head on here. God does not know the face palm. God knows none of those things because he cannot be frustrated. This was good news for the Israelites in Moses' day and it remains good news for us today. In fact... It's hard to miss the contemporary relevance of this story, is it not? In our country, in our world, we constantly see people in positions of influence leveraging their power, leveraging their strength, not to bless, but to oppress in all kinds of ways. In fact, if you have been following the news recently, you are aware that some of the most expansive legislation regarding abortion has been passed in both Virginia and New York. 
it seems that once again, the dark hand that animated Pharaoh is again promoting his agenda of infanticide. That same hand that guided the wicked heart of Pharaoh is once again alive and well in our world today and saying, if it's a baby, go ahead and kill it. It can be tempting for us to see this type of darkness in our culture. And like the Israelites thinks, God, have you forgotten us? Lord, oh Lord, it's bad out here. Are you going to step in? From where we sit, it looks like we're in trouble. God, can we trust you? But as powerful as the enemy's schemes may be, he will ultimately be defeated. In fact, get this concept right here. It seems that the Lord delights in using Satan's apparent triumphs as the means of his own defeat. Constantly, you see that theme throughout the Bible. When Satan thinks he's winning... When Satan does his quote-unquote best work, it actually becomes the means of his own defeat. Think about it for a moment. When Satan, when the serpent beguiled Eve, the woman, God promised that the snake crusher would come through the very woman who was deceived. When Satan accused Job, God used the story of Job to bring countless help to countless millions of people. When Satan scattered the early church from Jerusalem, the ones who were scattered took the gospel to the ends of the globe. It seems that God just loves, loves to say, Satan, you do your worst, and it actually ends up hurting yourself. Your own actions will be the means of your defeat. Though Satan is ancient, though Satan is clever, when pitted against the Lord, he is out of his league. Look, there is great evil in the world. There is great evil in the world. Satan is real, he is alive, and he is bad. We should grieve. We should fight against the schemes of Satan. We should long for a better day, but we should never, we should never, we should never believe that the Lord is in the heaven wringing his hands. God has a plan. He's wise and he can outmaneuver the devil. Quite literally, quite literally, God has everything under control. Man, just remember this. No matter what Satan does, God is several steps ahead of him. Always. God is always several steps. And sometimes it looks dark and sometimes it looks bad, but you can trust God because recognize this. He has a plan and it's coming together and it's a perfect plan that in the end will be executed with precision and beauty and we'll all look at it and say, well, that was just right. Number two. You can trust God because he's not only wise, but because God's compassion is constant. After Moses was born, it seems that the oppression of God's people continued. 
Years later, a, a grown Moses felt that now he could do something about it. So he takes matters into his own hand and he kills an Egyptian taskmaster. Fearing repercussions, Moses fled to Midian, got married, had a son, and listen to this, and disappeared for 40 years. Just fell off the map. 40 years gone. The Bible rightly captured how the Israelites must have felt. Verse number 23, after a long time. You think? After a long time. Indeed, 40 years of cruelty would have taken their toll. But look at the text again, verse 23. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor and they cried out and their cry of help because of the difficult labor ascended to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob. And listen to verse 25, it is so sweet. And God saw the Israelites and God knew Some translations say, and God took notice, or and God was concerned about them. None of this suffering, none of this hardship was escaping the watchful eye of the Lord. God cared about the plight of his people, and even before, even before they cried out to him, even before they said, God, deliver us, God was already working to prepare their deliverance. Remember, Moses has already been like prepping on the backside of the desert for quite some time now. He's got their instrument of deliverance all ready to go. So when they cry out to God, God's like, I've been thinking about this for quite some time. Sometimes when life gets hard, we're tempted to think that God has stopped caring for us. But the Exodus reminds us that God is always working for the good of his people. Why did God rescue Moses? Out of love for his people. Why did God cause Moses to be raised in Pharaoh's house? Out of love for God's people. Why did he send him to the desert? Out of love for God's people. And why was he about to send him back out of love for God's people? Listen to this statement. This is super profound. Follow this. We must not allow our limited perception of God's activity to cause us to doubt his love. Sometimes you look at your life and you're like, God, I don't see that you're doing anything. That doesn't mean he's not doing something. Don't let your limited perspective cause you to think that God is not caring about you because God hears the cries of his people and listen, brothers and sisters, God knows. He knows, he knows, he knows. And even if your heart is breaking, God knows about it. I don't know what you're enduring right now. I don't know what weighs you down. Maybe it's something that you've done. You just carry this load of guilt and weight on your heart. Maybe it's something that's been done to you. 
and that weighs you down. Perhaps the evil in the world breaks your heart. Or perhaps the evil in your own heart is enough to break your heart. I don't know. I don't know the situation. I don't know the suffering. I don't know what it is that makes you feel crushed and overwhelmed and oppressed. I know we all got those type of things in our life. But here's what I do know. If you have trusted Jesus, God knows. Look at me. Look at me. God knows. He knows. He knows your hurt. He knows your heartache. He knows that your cry is going up to him. He knows and he cares. And even if it doesn't look like it from your perception, God never stops caring about his people. His compassion is constant. If you've trusted in the work of Jesus, you are his and he will never ever stop loving you with an unbreakable, unstoppable, never ending love. He knows, he knows, he knows. You can trust God because he cares for you. He'll keep his promise to you. As the Apostle Paul puts it, I pray that you may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge. What is Paul saying? God's love for his people is so great that it, you can't even get it. He loves you so much that your brain is too small to comprehend it. And then Paul prays, I hope you get a glimpse of it anyway. You need to know that God cares about his people. But as amazing as the Exodus story is, it was never just about God rescuing Israelites from the e Egypt. Rather, the Exodus was always meant to serve as a signpost to point to an even greater rescue that God would provide to anyone who would trust in him. In a sense, as I said at the beginning, the Exodus is, is not their story. The Exodus is our story. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, just like in Exodus, all of us were in bondage. But it's something worse than Egypt, right? Romans 6 says it this way, that you were slaves to sin. In other words, we were all in the grip of our own evil desires and powerless to break free. You know what that feels like, right? You know what it feels like to be a slave to sin, don't you? The unkind word that comes flying out of your mouth, seemingly of its own volition. The anxious feeling that seems to crop up like weeds in your heart. Lust and greed and envy sometimes feel completely all beyond your control. This is the experience of a slave. Somebody who has no power to master the sin in their heart. But this is only half the problem, actually. Not only are we slaves to sin, but just like in Exodus, our enemy is powerful and ruthless. 1 Peter chapter 5, your adversary, the devil, is prowling about like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. There's some common perceptions about Satan in our world today. One, he's fictitious. Two, he's only at work in tribal areas. And three, he's really not that bad. But the truth is this, Satan is real, he was powerful, he is present, 
and he hates you. He hates you. And he would delight. He would rejoice at your everlasting destruction. There is nothing in this world that would make him more happy than that you be separated and alienated from God and endure separation from the Lord for all eternity. Satan hates you. He is cunning, he is crafty, he is ancient, he is smart, and he is strong. And thankfully, just like in the Exodus, God saw our plight and he sent a deliverer. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever, whoever, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Though we were slaves, though our enemy was strong, God thumbed his nose at the devil and laid down his life on the cross. Satan thought that the cross was his finest hour. It was actually his hour of decimation. Jesus Christ came to rescue those enslaved and ensnared. And finally, just like in Exodus, God turned Satan's own tactics against him. Hebrews chapter 2, verse number 14. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these. So that through his death, through his death, the thing that Satan thought was the ultimate aim. He might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and freed those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. The cross was supposed to be Satan's finest tactic, but it proved to be the last straw. What Satan believed his greatest victory turned out to be his worst defeat. Even though people like you and I were enslaved to sin, oppressed by the devil, before the world even began, God was perfectly executing his plan to send a deliverer who would do what you and I could not do for ourselves. God will never forget his people. Never. So where does this lead us? Two, th two things, two, two practical applications this morning. Here they are. Trust God to save you. Oh, my friends, this is the greatest way you can trust the Lord. He sent his son to free you from slavery to sin. There is no enemy strong enough to oppose him. He has been working to provide salvation for people like you and I before you were even born. Before the world was created, God had a plan to rescue his people through the work of Jesus Christ. If you've never trusted in that glorious hope, 
if you feel oppressed from within and without, if you feel overwhelmed by your sin and overwhelmed by the evil in this world, there is a deliverer who came to save you. Please, I beg you, I plead with you today, right now, trust in that deliverer. He came to save. The greatest way that you can trust God is to turn away from those sins and put your hope in Jesus and Jesus alone. Confess the reality that you need a savior. I need a deliverer. Lord, the story of Exodus is my story. I am enslaved. I need someone to come in and help me. Please do so. And right now, today, he will part the Red Sea for you. He will walk you out of slavery and he will take you to the promised land. Oh, my friends, if you do not know Jesus in that way, please, please trust him to save you. But you say, okay, Ryan, I, I have. I've, I've trusted in Jesus. That, that is me. I have trusted in Jesus and his work to rescue me. I want to say this to you, if that's true, trust God to keep you as well. Remember the story from the great escape, those who got out of Stalag Luft three, 76 men. You know, only a few of them actually survived. They were recaptured. Most of them were executed on the spot. And I believe three actually made it home. Why? Because once they got out, they were on their own. But friends, this is not the deliverance that God provides. He has promised not only to save you, but to keep you. I know that life can get hard, but I want to urge you, in spite of the mess, in spite of the oppression, in spite of the evil, keep on trusting God because he will never forget his people. He doesn't just want to rescue you once. He wants to rescue you every single day of your life. Trust him to save you. Trust him to keep you. And trust him to keep on keeping you until that day that you die and he brings you into his presence forever. I, I know I speak for Rod when I say this. If you are a member of Gospel Hope Church, our greatest desire for you is that you hit the tape. We want you to finish. We want you to trust Jesus on that very last breath that you take. We don't want to be flash in the pans. We don't want to be these false, not real things. When the life gets hard, then we don't trust Jesus anymore. We want to keep on trusting Jesus. So that's really my application this morning. Right now, I'd la like to ask our prayer team to come as we get ready to close out here. Two things, very simply. If you've not trusted in the work of Jesus to rescue you from your sins, please, would you trust in him today? And if you have trusted in Jesus, let me just urge you, keep on trusting him. Keep on trusting. The God of the Exodus never forgets his people. And we've got some folks right here on the side. And man, if... if if one of those areas in your life you'd like someone to talk with you about or pray with you about, they would sure be glad to. Or if you have questions about what I've said this morning, or you're like, man, I, I want to trust in Jesus, but 
man, I'm not sure exactly what that looks like. Would you, will you come grab Pastor Rod or I? We would love to talk with you more about that this morning and share with you how you can trust God to deliver you from your sins. Can we pray together? Let's stand. Lord, thank you for the deliverance you provide. Thank you for Christ. Thank you that he came and did what we could not do for ourselves. Father, I pray that we would trust in you. I pray that we would lean into you. In Christ we pray. Amen. Church, God is wise. God cares. And you can trust him. Let's sing his praises and feel free to respond by going to those that are there to pray.